Today's scripture is, comes, comes to us from 2 Chronicles 7, verses 11 through 22. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence amongst my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man to rule Israel. But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set, for, set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you and this house that I have consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And at this house, which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this disaster on them. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My name's Eric, the pastor here at Trinity. Before we move straight into the message here, I just wanted to highlight one more of those announcements on page 8, and that's regarding a class we're calling Trinity 201. So Trinity 201, it's a follow-up, as you may have guessed, to Trinity 101. And uh, the thrust and the main focus of this class is going to be answering the question, how has God uniquely wired me? How has God uniquely crafted my story in order that I might be a blessing to the people and to the places where he's called me to be and to go. And so it's a hands-on class. We're going to be doing assessments, looking at spiritual gifts, looking at our strengths. We'll be uh, examining our story and also um, asking the question, how does God actually redeem my suffering? So those are four S's, and I do love alliteration, but those, those are the four S's we're going to do. It's hands-on, there's assessments, uh, there's interaction and conversation. It's something we hope to offer regularly here at Trinity, and it's limited to 10 people. And I put that out there thinking we're going to have to just fight people off and close the doors, but so far uh, we have three or four registered, and I, if you're interested, let me know, um, because we hope to start that class in a few weeks after the service. So all the info is there in the bulletin. This morning, we are resuming our series on the book of Chronicles. It's called Renew. And we're calling this series Renew because that is the theme. That is the heartbeat 
of the book of Chronicles. That's why God has given us this book, in order to bring about a renewal of faith, in order to bring about a revival of mission and purpose in our lives. So this is the ninth message in our series. After this one, we're going to take a pause, and for for the season of Advent, we'll be doing a series that I'll be calling Good News, Great Joy. It'll be a series of Advent messages as we look ahead uh, to, to Christmas. And then 2018, we'll, we'll jump right back into Chronicles, and we'll be looking at all the history and the story of the kings after Solomon. So it is almost Christmas. Uh, Thanksgiving is, is right here, coming up this week. So happy Thanksgiving week to all of you. It just seems like Christmas is always starting earlier and earlier. Maybe I just noticed it this this season, but the day after Halloween, like nearby our house in the marketplace there in Tustin, there was all the Christmas decorations the day after Halloween. Um, my birthday is three days after Christmas. Just putting a little plug in there for, for my birthday. Uh, so me and Jesus, he gets all, he gets all the attention uh, for his birthday, and mine's kind of just forgotten. But anyway, uh, just it's okay. I've, I've gotten over that. I've, I've learned to deal with that. Um, But I thought, just in case you were wondering what I would want as a Christmas gift or a birthday gift, I just wanted to share um, this this picture of something that's on my wish list. So maybe we can get that picture up on the screen there. There it is. That's a t-shirt. So it says, uh, straight out of context, and some of you know that's a little bit of a play um, on straight out of Compton, and that's this... Yeah, that's a story of uh, where gangster rap came from here in L.A. in Southern California. But I love this, t- I love this T-shirt, um, and the reason I bring it up is because for some of you, what we just read, what Albert just read, and what you just heard uh, from Second Chronicle, we can take that off now. That's going to be a distraction. But uh, from Second Chronicle seven, a lot of it's probably unfamiliar to you, but there may be one verse in there that for some of you is actually very familiar. If you look back again at verse 14, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, it's probably the most well-known and most oft-quoted verse in all of Chronicles. And if you're new to Christianity, if you're exploring Jesus, we are so glad that you're here worshiping with us as a church. But one thing that you need to know about Christians is that sometimes we're guilty of something that I call over-hallmarking verses of Scripture, where we take verses of Scripture out of context and put them on greeting cards and that kind of thing. And we, we tend to lose where they come from. And so this is one of those verses and passages in the Bible that we do that, that actually kind of obscures its content, its intent, and its meaning for us. So this verse, you might see it printed over the backdrop of an American flag. I saw it printed out in the shape of the United States, kind of the map of America, under the heading of Pray for America, God bless America, and that, that kind of thing. So let me say this. While a proper application of this passage, this whole, this whole text does call us to pray for our country, to pray for our communities, this verse is not written about the United States. It's not written uh, directly about our country. And so only by seeing it as, as given to us in its context can we see how it actually calls us uh, to live for, to serve, uh, and bless our nation and our, our country. So this passage 
then is not a message directly addressed to the United States, to any country, uh, not just the United States. But if you read it again, 714 Chronicles, it says, this is addressed to my people. This is a passage or a text for the believing community in any nation, in any place, calling them to a renewal of humility. And so the idea is that we shouldn't spend our time and our energy looking at or pointing out all the issues, all the problems, all the wickedness out there that we see in the culture or in any country. But the passage instead is calling us to focus on living with a humble awareness of our own issues, of our own problems, and even our own wicked ways. Second Chronicles 7.14, even this whole chapter, then is showing us the kind of humility that can bring a renewal to us, a healing to us, and in turn make us humble people who are agents of healing to our communities, even to our country or wherever God has us. So despite its misuse, there's good reason for this verse to be very popular. Second Chronicles 7.14 is probably the most important verse in the book of Chronicles. Scholars and commentators all agree with that because it sets up the entire rest of the book. It's kind of a high point. And from here on out, chapters 10 through 36, all the kings of Israel will be judged on whether they paid attention to Second Chronicles 7.14. It's like the place that God says, Come back here. Come back to this place when you need hope, when you've lost your way, when you've wandered, or when you've strayed. A couple times in our family, we have four kids, four boys, we have lost, we've lost a child for a short moment. And we had all the panic and fear that's associated with doing that. Keeping track of four kids is, is not easy. It's kind of borderline impossible for me, and we get distracted, especially when it's in a big crowd and there's all kinds of people. Those are the times when we've lost track of one of our kids. And I know what you're supposed to do to avoid that. You're supposed to, before you go into a big crowd or somewhere that's unfamiliar, you're supposed to have the parent talk with your kids and say, if you get lost, in our case, boys, if you get lost, meet us at this place. Come find us here, and we will be here, and we'll be waiting for you. But I have never had that talk with our kids. And so when they get lost and we have to panic and go searching for them, we found them, thankfully. But I also always feel like a, a horrible parent because I never have that parent talk with my kids beforehand. Second Chronicles 7.14, it's where God has that talk with us. He is a good parent. He's a good father. He says, if you get lost, come here. Come back to this passage. Stay here. If you stay here, I will find you. So no matter what we're dealing with, no matter how disappointed we are, maybe with God, maybe with ourselves or our lives, no matter how difficult things are going for us, Second Chronicles 7.14, God says there's hope. There's hope for, for renewal. There's hope for healing. And when we come to this place, hope is found in a turnaround and a turning point when we experience a renewal of humility. So we're going to look at three things this morning. First, why we need humility. Second, how we learn humility. And third, how we heal through humility. So first, how or why, excuse me, why we need a renewal of humility. 
me share first what, what it means to, to, what the word humility even means, a definition. What does it mean to be humble? What does it mean to experience humility? And I have a definition, a couple different ways that I like to think of it. First, we'll put it up there on the screen. Humility is what? It's living with an acute awareness and a full ownership of our weaknesses, limitations, and sin. It's not just knowing about these things, but having acute awareness, a full ownership of our weakness, limitations, and sin. Another way that we could describe it, and I think even Steve prayed through these things, it's admitting that the three F's apply to us personally. I am finite, I am fragile, and I am fallen. I am finite. I am limited in my knowledge, in my abilities, in my time, in my energy, more limited than I would ever care to admit. I'm finite. It also means admitting that I am fragile. I am hurt and I am broken by living in a broken world. More broken, more hurt than I would ever care to admit. And I am also fallen. This means that I am sinful. I am a sinner. I am a bigger sinner than I'd ever know or care to admit to myself or others. Humility is embracing all of that and saying, yes, This applies to me. I am not an exception to the rule. And the opposite of humility is pride. It's when we overestimate our importance, our abilities, our knowledge. It's when we become self-centered, self-absorbed, self-reliant, self-confident, and independent. Many theologians encourage us to think of humility not as a separate virtue among many virtues, but as the core and root virtue out of which all character comes, out of all the other virtues, grow. Why do we need humility so badly? Why do we need a renewal of humility? I want to share two reasons. I'll call the first one a cultural reason and the second one a spiritual reason, a cultural reason. So we are living at a time and in our culture, we have all kinds of divisions. There's a lot of tension. There are a lot of attacks being lobbed back and forth depending on where you stand on certain issues and who you stand with. There seems to be, at the same time, with all this tension and division, a little bit of a resurgence and interest in the value of humility. Our culture is suffering from a humility deficit or a metaphor that we might resonate with as Californians is a drought. There is a drought of humility. Here's a few voices that are saying things about this. Um, there's something at UC Berkeley called the Greater Good Science Center, study on um, what brings about the greater good for our society. There's an article written uh, on the Greater Good Science Center website and in their journal called, it's a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek title, How Humility Will Make You the Greatest Person Ever. And in that article, the author writes this. There's the quote there, the first one on top. Our culture places so much value on external accomplishments, appearance, and self-aggrandizement, all things that are ephemeral at best, that even a small display of this quiet virtue, humility, can make one feel like a drowning man coming up for air. She's saying our culture is drowning in pride. Even the little taste of humility can be so refreshing when we see it. Another article in the Chronicle of Higher Education uh, the article is entitled, Teaching Humility in an Age of Arrogance. The author, Michael Patrick Lynch, said, 
if there is a single attitude most closely associated with our culture, it's the opposite of humility. The defining trait of the age seems to be arrogance. We have all these divisive battles that go on in social media, on Twitter. We have an inability, it seems, to see uh, the opposing point of view when it comes to so many of the things that divide us. So we need a renewal of humility because it's, some, it's become so scarce, so hard to find. And one of the best ways that we can serve the common good and to love and bless our neighbors is to simply be people of humility. That's what these uh, voices are saying. So there's a cultural reason. There's a lack. There's a deficit. There's a drought of humility. Secondly, there's a spiritual reason. If you look at the text at verse 11, I want you to look there and we'll read that again. It says, thus Solomon, he finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Look at those last two words. You can underline them if you're following along. Successfully accomplished. Who wouldn't want those two words to describe your life? Successfully accomplished. Solomon had spiritual success, he had personal success, career success, financial success, he had all of it. We saw earlier from our study in the book of Chronicles that when David had reached this point in his own life, that he was most susceptible to forgetting God in pride. But what's not clear from the text here in Chronicles is if you look at Second Chronicles 7 verse 10 and Second Chronicles 7 verse 11, in those two verses, 10 and 11, 13 years had passed between the completion of the temple and then God coming to Solomon to answer his prayer that he prayed at the completion of the temple. So we know that 13 years had passed because Solomon, uh, we learn from the book of Kings, finished the completion of his palace or his house 13 years after the completion of the temple. So why then? Solomon prayed this great prayer. We looked at it a few weeks ago in chapter 6. Why did God wait 13 years to answer that prayer? Why did he pick this moment to appear to him in a dream when Solomon sat back and was successfully accomplished? I think it's because of this, that in our success and accomplishments, we are most prone to pride and the most likely to dismiss our need for humility. The more successfully accomplished we are, the harder for, for us will it be to remain humble, and the more driven we are to become successful, to become accomplished, the harder it will be for us to see our need for humility. And isn't this something very challenging for us? Here in Orange County, here at our churches, I've gotten to know all of you, I would say so many of you are successfully accomplished, well-educated, succeeding in your fields. You're great students. Many of you have great theological knowledge. We have all kinds of seminary degrees and PhDs here. It could be in medicine or healthcare, even in your hobbies. I know many of you, you're like all out. You're successfully accomplished. You're like the best in your hobby. You're a very successfully accomplished group. And in Orange County, we are in a culture, we are driven for more. We want more success. We want to be more accomplished in every way. 
and I do too. My goal for ministry at Trinity is not that we would be average and mediocre, but we would be successful and we would be accomplishing the mission and the vision we believe God has called us to. So success and accomplishment, these aren't bad things. Who wants to be averagely mediocre or an unsuccessful disappointment? Nobody wants that. But the danger here is this, that when we want to be successfully accomplished more than we want humility, then we are susceptible to pride. We will be inevitably pulled into pride. In the introduction, I said, this is a message that's directed to people in the believing community. In verse 14, God says, this is for my people who are called by my name. And then he goes on to describe how these people who are called by his name are living inconsistently with their name. He says there's, there's wicked, wickedness and evil ways that they've been caught up in that are distancing them from him. We call this the problem of nominal belief, or you could call it nominal Christianity. By nominal, we mean by name only. And God is saying to his people, you are acting like my people in name only. And 2 Chronicles 7.14 is his answer to the problem of nominal belief, of nominal Christianity. So to my Christian friends, there is a challenge here for all of us. That in order for us to go beyond being Christians in name only, we have to have humility. It is a necessary requirement. Let me share a quote from St. Augustine. This was just resonating with me all week as I was studying. He says this, Humility is the foundation of all other virtues. Hence, in the soul in which this virtue does not exist, there cannot be any other virtue except in mere appearance. What is he saying? Why do we need humility? Say we need humility because without humility, the best that we can do is just fake it. The sign of genuine Christianity then is this, that we want humility even more than we want to be successfully accomplished. That we're even willing to boast in the three F's that we are finite, we are fallen, we are fragile. And that puts us more in touch with the reality of God and His grace. More joy, less of us, and more of Him. And a quick word for those of you who are exploring Christianity, if you're new to Jesus and you're investigating, it's important for you to know this, that what Jesus asks of you is impossible apart from humility. Trying to follow Jesus without it won't work. And so hear this call. Jesus is calling you to a place of humility, to learn it before you move forward. First, then, those are the reasons why we need a renewal of humility. And if humility is so vital, if pride can be so pervasive in our lives, how do we learn to humble ourselves? That's the second point, how we learn humility. A few years back at Redeemer San Diego, the church that I was at previously, we did a series on the seven deadly sins. And it was like a surprise to us because that was one of the most popular series we ever did. People were like, tell me more about sin. And we were like, shocked. But what, one of the things uh, that we realized as we were going through the seven deadly sins is there's a long history of commentary, of theologians, of uh, cultural commentators investigating how we make sense of 
these deadly sins, and why are they deadly? And one thing we realized was that uh, there really are six deadly sins and one root sin out of which they all grow. And pride is that root sin. And pride gives birth. It's, it's the commander-in-chief of all the other sins. And so if we don't get to pride, like weeds in a garden, if we don't get to the root, then the issues we have, the struggles we have, the spiritual malaise we have, the disappointment we have, it will all just tend to grow back. And so we need to get into the root. And there are two ways that I see in this text, verses 13 and 14, that show us how God goes there, how He gets to the root to teach us humility through hardship and through prayer. Humility is is learned through hardship. In verse 13, God describes these scenarios where humility is learned. And He says, when I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, this verse, verse 13, is a summary of Solomon's prayer in, verse, or in chapter 6, 26 through 31. Solomon says, God, would you hear us when heaven is shut up, when there's no rain, when there's famine and pestilence and blight and mildew and locusts and caterpillars, whatever plague, whatever sickness happens. In verse 29 of chapter 6, he says, in any affliction or in any sorrow, he says, God, hear your people. And in this answer to Solomon's prayer, God says, and he shows us, that he uses hardship to teach us humility. And that's, that's difficult for us to hear. That's difficult for us to process. At first, it seems like God is being a very vindictive God. But that's not the picture here at all. The picture here is of a loving God, a pursuing God. A God who wants to save us from the destructive effects of pride and heal us through discipline. If you are reading along with us in our CBR reading, in our Bible reading plan here at Trinity, we've been reading through the book of Hebrews and now we're in James. But the book of Hebrews describes how God uses hardship to heal us. Chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, it says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as children? My children, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, for the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. In verse 11, it says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The purpose of punishment is punitive. But that's not what this is talking about. That's not what Hebrews is talking about. The purpose of discipline is transformative and restorative. Now what this verse is saying, what this passage is saying, is that not all hardship is a direct result of our sin and our pride, but that in all hardship we have the opportunity to learn humility. Jerry Sitzer, some of you may know his story. Uh, He's an author and he's a professor. Back in 1992, he lost his wife, his mother, and daughter all in a horrific car accident. And he's written since a few books where he's reflected on suffering. I want to share with you what he says. 
about hardship. He says every experience of adversity forces us to make a decision. Will we stay on our own course and continue to be our old self, which adversity exposes as small and petty, impatient and angry, irritable and ungrateful? Or will we choose the course God sets and become a different kind of person, one characterized by love for God and neighbor, goodness of heart and goodness of character? Here's the point that I want you to hear. In either case, adversity will not allow us to remain the same. Either we will try to maintain control, growing increasingly angry or depressed in the wake of frustration and failure, or we will grow in character, becoming more like Christ. He's saying in in hardship, we go one of two directions. Either our heart is hardened, or we learn humility. But the choice that we don't have is to remain the same. There's no neutral option. John Stott said, pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. And we have the saying out there that any friend of a friend is a friend of mine. So if you have a best friend in in life and they say, I want you to meet somebody. They're my friend. Then you're open. You're somewhat excited. You say, well, we probably share the same taste. I might get along with this person. And so you're open to a friendship with them. If humility is our greatest friend, and if hardship is the friend of humility, then we can learn to be open to what God might teach us through hardship and in hardship. And I do want to be clear, I'm not talking about minimizing or explaining our pain, our suffering, that there should be tears and lament. I'm talking about how God works through hardship to defeat our worst enemy in life which is pride. It teaches us we're not all-powerful, we're not all-knowing, and in hardship we come to grips with our humanity and our need. I could say more about that, but secondly, humility is learned through prayer. Prideful people have a very hard time with prayer because all true prayer emerges from a place of need. When we're living in a posture of pride, our prayers are mostly focused on asking God to bring success to our plans and to help us accomplish our goals, but not much beyond beyond that. Verse 14 shows us the kind of prayer that teaches us humility. It says, if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, that will lead us to forgiveness and healing. The face of someone is, it's been called uh, by one author, like the relational gate. That you really can't say that you know somebody if you haven't been in person with them, if you haven't interacted with them face to face. Prayer that is not seeking something from God, but that is seeking God himself is the kind of prayer that is seeking his face. To know him, not to get things from him. It's that kind of prayer that teaches us humility. Humility is learned when we meet somebody greater than us, somebody better than us, somebody smarter, somebody more successful, somebody more powerful than us. If you think that you are a really good-looking person and then you encounter somebody who is extremely beautiful or good-looking, all of a sudden you start to think, I don't know, maybe I'm not as good-looking as I thought I was. Or if you're proud of your musical abilities, or your athletic abilities. 
And then you play with someone who's just light years beyond you. All of a sudden, you think, man, maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was. Or if, you're, you, if you think you're impressively smart and you meet someone who is just far beyond you in your intellect, you don't say that much. You just remain quiet and you kind of are in awe and say, wow, I think I do have so much to learn. If I think on Monday, I preached a really great sermon. On Monday, often I'll listen to other sermons and I'll listen to Tim Keller or Scotty Smith or some of my favorite preachers and they will humble me. So I'll say, man, that was a great sermon. I have so far to go. Humility is learned when we meet or encounter someone who is greater than us. And it's that kind of prayer. Often when hardship moves us to a place of desperation where we ask God more than for Him to remove what's hard in our lives, more than for God to remove all the obstacles to our success and accomplishments. But we come to the place where we say, God, I'm seeking your face. It's there in that encounter with God and His greatness and His glory that we learn humility. why we need a renewal of humility, how we learn humility, and now thirdly, how we heal through humility. Verse 14 tells us God's response to the humble. He says, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. The end goal of 2 Chronicles 7.14, the end goal of seeking God in humility is, he says, healing. The Hebrew there is rapha. And one scholar says, Rafa is a comprehensive healing. It's a healing that reaches into our lives and restores us in all of our relationships. So I want to look at how humility brings healing to our relationships, first with God, then ourselves, and lastly, with others. In order to experience healing and restoration in our relationship with God, we need to experience regular renewals of humility. The message of Christianity says the secret to comprehensive healing in our lives is to be brought lower than we ever thought possible. No other worldview, no other belief system, no other religion calls us to go this low. And at the same time, Christianity says you must be lifted higher than you ever thought possible, higher than any other worldview, belief system, or religion can bring you. Jesus says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. How does this work? Well, Christianity says we are more prideful, more sinful, more broken, more weak and limited than we can ever know. More sinful, weak, broken, and limited than we would ever want to admit. That pride has so infected the human heart, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You have nothing to offer God. We have nothing to bring to God, and there's nothing we can do to heal ourselves. It's not an equation where we bring a little bit, and God does a lot of it, where God does the heavy lifting. Christianity says it's nothing from us, and it's everything from Jesus. God wants to humble us lower than we'd ever want to go. But at the same time, Christianity says you are more valuable, loved, and important to God and his purposes in this world than you would ever dare dream or you would ever want to verbally admit to anybody else. 
Even in your proudest moments, God wants to exalt you beyond your wildest dreams. But how can both be true? We haven't talked a lot about what comes after verse 14 in 2 Chronicles, 15 through 22. But there in those uh, verses, God presents Solomon with two future scenarios, if you look back at those. Based on the king's faithfulness, based on the people's faithfulness, it says in verse 1, scenario 1, if you walk with me, the temple will always be there for you. It will be a symbol of my presence and my access. My eyes and heart will be there for all time. But then there's a second scenario in verses 19 through 22. God says, if you walk away from me, I will cast the temple out of my sight. It will become a byword among other nations. I will bring disaster. And then when people come and see where the temple used to be, they will be astonished. They'll pass by and say, why? Why has the Lord done this to his land and to his house? And the answer is because his people did not humble themselves. But they walked away in pride. As we'll see from the rest of our time in the book of Chronicles, scenario two, it happened. The temple's destruction was the most astonishing and humbling aspect of the story of the Old Testament and the story of Israel. Why would God do that? But we see what's even more astonishing and humbling from the Gospels, from the New Testament, was the destruction of the greater temple. Jesus said in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Just like the temple's destruction was meant to force people to ask the question, why? What is God doing? Why did this happen? The cross is also meant to force us to ask the question, why? It's the question Jesus asked himself. My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Those who passed by Jesus while he was on the cross said, if this is God's son, if this is God's Messiah, then why is he on the cross? Why is he dying? Why has the Lord done this to him? Why has this disaster come upon him? And the answer was the same. It's because of human pride, because of our pride. So we see the cross brings us low. It brings us lower than we'd ever want to go because it shows us that because of our pride, we should be cast out. We should be abandoned. We should be left to the disaster of a life apart from God. That's the ugliness of our pride. But at the same time, the cross lifts us up. Jesus says, I will be cast out. I will be abandoned. I will have the disaster of judgment come upon me. So it will never become upon you. I will do that in your place for you. Because even in your pride, I love you. And I want you to experience healing. To be healed of pride. Humility heals us when the cross brings us low. And at the same time when the cross lifts us up. How can that bring deep healing to ourselves? Well, humility is really just the acceptance of reality. We are finite, we are fragile, we are fallen people. That is simply the truth about us as human beings. When we step out of pride into humility, then we step out of deception and we step into reality. And this is powerfully healing 
in and of itself. Because when we embrace humility, we give ourselves the permission to be humans, human beings. Every Monday, uh, in my personal liturgy of prayer, I use uh, the liturgy given in the Church of England. I use a prayer book. And every Monday, I start off with a prayer through Psalm 103. And a part of Psalm 103 tells us this about God. It says, He knows what we are made. He remembers that we are dust. And especially on Mondays, I need to hear that. After a busy Sunday and playing uh, Monday morning quarterback, how did it go? How did I do? All these thoughts, pride can seep in. And God says, I remember what you are made. I remember that you are but dust. We often think to admit the, four, the three F's about ourselves, that we are finite, fallen, and fragile people, that we will isolate ourselves. People will reject us. That will rob us of our sense of self-worth and value. That it will make us weak. But the opposite is true. When we live in humility, we find deeper connection with others in their brokenness and in their humanity and weakness. We find our true value and acceptance in hearing the voice of God embrace us in our humility, and we find our true strength. So we don't have to hide in pride. That's the paradox. We are lifted up to our true humanity by our descent into humility. Real quickly, I want to close with a thought on how a renewal of humility can bring healing through us to others. This is the holiday season. I know for a lot of us that means uh, family time. And some, for some of us, that is great joy. We love family time. For others, it's a mixed bag. And for others, it's like that's going to be very stressful. There's a lot of baggage that comes with family time uh, for me. I want you to consider how humility can be a source of healing throughout this holiday season. Wherever you stand on the spectrum of, of uh, hurts and pain and baggage with your family. We bring healing to the world not through our answers, not through our advice, but through a presence of humility. How Christians are often seen in the culture is that we're not really good at listening, often self-interested, not willing to listen to critique or rebuke, out for our own good at the expense of others in our society. We compromise for power in order to be close to power, not willing to fully own up to our wrongs, not good at saying, I'm sorry and not willing to bear the potential humiliation that comes with confession. But humility calls us to flip that on its head, that we would learn to be the best listeners, that we would be looking out for the interests of others, protecting the interests of others, that we'd be willing to be called out and to learn from others. We'd be unwilling to compromise for power, but willing to confess and to repent, even when it costs us, even when it's humbling. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, how can I possibly serve another person in unfeigned humility if I seriously regard his sinfulness as worse than my own? So let me just call you to one application here as you enter into the holidays. And just take a risk. Consider taking a risk for humility. Go out of your way to serve someone. Be the first one to say, I'm sorry. Or lead the way in setting aside your rights for the good of your family, for the good of the other person. Earlier on I said 
Second Chronicles 7.14 is like a landmark. It's when we get lost, when we've wandered, when we feel far and distant from God. God says, come back to this place. When you come back to this place, I guarantee you'll find me here. I guarantee I'll hear you, I'll forgive you, receive you, and you can experience healing. May we know a renewal of humility. May we receive that invitation and find God anew this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, there was never another greater than you, more powerful, more glorious, more strong and mighty, and yet you descended in humility to be obedient, to live the life that we could never live in our place, to die the death we should have died. I pray that wherever you want to bring us low, that we wouldn't resist it, that we wouldn't fight it. However you want to teach us humility, that we would open up our hearts to be taught. And I pray at the same time that you would lift us up, that you would exalt us far greater than we ever would have dreamed because we are loved, because we are valued, because we are received based on what you have done for us. Humble us and give us that rare mixture of joyful brokenness. We pray it in your name. Amen.